Hi, I'm Peggy Garrity, Chancellor of the University of Alberta, and you're listening to Chancellor's Conversations. Last month, I interviewed Doug Stollery, one of the lawyers on the landmark Delwyn Green case, which changed the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms forever. Following our interview, we invited the audience to ask questions and share their own commentary on Doug's story. I'm joined by producer Adam Rosenhart to chat about pieces of that conversation. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you for having me, Peggy. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. When you listened to that recording, Adam, what really struck you? I think what was really fascinating about the evening where we brought those folks together was that there were, you know, maybe 20 of us. But every single person in that room touched the Delwyn Vreen case in some case, some cases. And the folks that maybe, like myself, who were a little young and not paying attention, were touched by the case. So it was just like, it was such a fascinating conversation and like living history to experience in the room. It, it was. And, it, and it, brought, it brought the memories and the story of what had happened right to today. And so the conversation was so relevant today, even though the case was 25 years ago. So what have you got planned for us today? Well, I was thinking because there was such a robust conversation following your interview with Doug that I would just play some clips of of the things that folks in the room said and just have you respond to each one of them. This first one was right after your interview with Doug Stollery, where Murray Billet spoke up about his reflections on the case. So let's listen to that. Over the years, it's, this case is the gift that keeps on giving in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and many in this room have done a lot of work on it over the years. And, and I still have the opportunity to do a fair amount of public education, uh, working with John McDougall, who's chair of the police commission, speaking to, to sheriffs and peace officers and, and corrections, that, that kind of crowd. And this case is constantly brought up. And so I did a quick fast facts on the Delwyn case. So we had one history-making decision, nine judges, one respondent, the government of Alberta, four appellants, 33 lawyers, 17 law firms, 15 interveners, and one decision with 31,000 words and 1,055 paragraphs. Wow. (laughs) And... uh, the, the touching words, the language of that Supreme Court, I just had the opportunity to, to watch the whole case front to back uh, while I was uh, away on, in uh, northwestern Ontario. And like Doug, I moved to tears every damn time I listened to that thing. Um, I think one of the most important things that happened is, um, and I think Lyle Caney is one of the ones that, and I'm paraphrasing what he said, we need to learn to walk, hold hands and walk through the doors of equality together. Mm-hmm. Well. This city, this community, and our allies at a remarkable time in history accomplished something that that just shouldn't have happened, like Doug said. And there's so many stories within the stories. Stockwell Day hung up on me, and I, (laughs) UNA's office was literally across the street from the ledge. I went over to his damn office, knocked on the door, and told his assistant, Murray's here, to finish the conversation. And that's, (laughs) that's the kind of stuff that we we had to do. And one of the things that I always bring up when I'm doing my training, and and I'm actually going to a junior high in a couple of weeks to talk to junior high kids, I talk about everybody's right, responsibility, and obligation. 
and you take that seriously. Because still today, and we talk about living in the closet, and the term that I use for living in the closet is living a life of deceit, denial, risk, regret, and obligation. And when I use those five words in any crowd, it, it, it resonates in a significant way. And it's, and it's still going on. And so I've, part of the other thing is, is discrimination hinders coming out and coming out hinders discrimination. Right. And I've always used that one. And the unions, I wouldn't be where I am, who I am, what I am, if it wasn't for the support of the United Nurses of Alberta, mm -hmm. Heather Smith, mm -hmm. uh, the local president. They get, at one point, you guys, the phone was ringing more for me at UNA than it was for UNA. <laughs> and the office manager's going, Murray, you got it. And I'm going, sorry. <laughs> Oops. And, and the unsung heroes that did all of the, re Joanne Combs, the people that did the work behind the scenes, Catherine and Margaret, I'm, I, I'm in front of the me doing media stuff and I wasn't real well trained at dealing with media, but they gave me the courage and the words and, and wound me up and pushed me out the door and, and, and man, oh man, if I wouldn't have had that kind of support, but so many of us behind the scenes and those on the front that made this happen, it, 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 it was a remarkable time in history. And it's that decision, I think, is going to continue to be relied upon and and learned as a result. Because you know, the more and more we've got, we we just finished a podcast on on, mm -hmm. on the case as well. So uh, uh, I was just very proud to be a very very small part of it. And and uh, who knew when we first started talking about this case that it would turn into that? <laughs> you know, now you Google your names and look what happens. <laughs> We're glad it did turn into that. I'd like to make just one more comment, if I might, about the closet. I, I, I've said this before, I'll, I'll say it again. Just so that there's no confusion, it's not one big closet <laughs> full of gay people. That might have been a little more fun, but <laughs> it's hundreds of thousands or millions of individual closets, each with one person. So the closet is a small, dark place. So, Peggy, what's your initial reaction to, to Murray's part of the story there? You know, it was so good hearing from Murray because he was such an inter integral part of what happened. He talks about, you know, the people that were behind the scenes and, and the numbers that he quoted. You know, we hear, I, I mean, I, I knew Doug, I knew Sheila Greco was, they were the two lawyers that, that were at the Supreme Court. But there was just like an army of people behind them that allowed and enabled something that might have seemed impossible at the time to, to make that happen. And what, what his words reminded me of, because sometimes I think it's frustrating for many people to hear those words. For those of you who listened to the first podcast, the words of that Supreme Court decision, they bring tears to my eyes, and I wasn't involved nearly as much as these people were. They are words to live by. Mm -hmm. And yet, the simple fact that it now is enshrined in legislation doesn't mean that the work is done. There's still work that needs to be done, and so there's a reminder there that just changing laws isn't enough. And, and I think the other reminder is how much it takes all of us, it takes people actually continuing to do the work. 
so that we don't we don't fall back. So that's really interesting and and great that you had mentioned the work that still needs to be done because we then heard from Andre, who works for the Institute for Sexual Minority Studies and Services here at the university, about kind of yes, we've made a prog- a lot of progress, but here's what's keeping him up at night. So let's hear from Andre. I think you're you're absolutely right to speak to the power of the law and you know what we saw happen after the Supreme Court decision, the spate of omnibus legislation federally, the changes to human rights legislation in all our provinces and territories. Uh, It was not an easy road, but it did happen over a period of time. But I'm still struck that in 2022, despite the power of law and legislation, despite the many protections we have and the recourse we have, that cultural homobitransphobia is still so powerful, uh, not just in our communities, but in our social institutions. Um, I spent my time as a hermit during COVID looking at what's going on in education, social work, uh, policing justice, particularly human rights law programs, and looking at healthcare. And it's absolutely disappointing to look at those areas, and I call them all uh, areas where we train caring professionals, and yet uh, there are so many people that walk out of teacher education programs, social work programs, Human rights law, I'll just single that out. It should happen Mm -hmm. there. And, uh, you know, we look at how we we train our police and we certainly look at how we train our our nurses. And and I'm interested in how we train family doctors, for example, and how many of them uh, are absolutely not trained and are ill-prepared to accommodate our children and youth which means the cycle continues. Mm -hmm. Because if there's that void in not accommodating our children and youth, and then they grow up, and they're going to be like we were, dealing with mental and emotional health issues. Um, I remember teaching in a Catholic school, one week going to a psychologist, another to a psychiatrist. And I look at, you know, when I, I just retired, but I remember thinking about our undergraduate education students and many of them who were, I use sexual and gender minorities. I know some people don't like the term minority, but I like the clout it has because in Canada, we recognized linguistic minorities, we recognized ethnocultural minorities, and thanks to Vreend, we recognized sexual minorities, and of course, that's been expanded to include gender minorities. But I look out at at an undergraduate who is transgender or gay or lesbian, and I want them to learn, but I also want the heterosexual cisgender teachers to know enough so that they can accommodate every student in their care. Back in 2000, Alberta Education had a document and its theme was be there for every student. And I would like social workers to be there for every client. I would like human rights lawyers 
to know what the needs and the concerns of sexual and gender minorities and so on are. And that concerns me, alongside with what I've seen happen in this country since 2016. Uh, there were a number of events in that year, and they've continued since. And what is so disturbing now is sexual and gender minorities are targeted from the left and the right. You know, there was a time I only had to worry about parents for choice in education. But there are so many groups on the left and the right that deeply concern me and they target sexual and gender minorities for all kinds of reasons. And part of it is, on the left, is that they don't realize that comment you made about it's not just one closet and it's not just a big closet. I don't talk about the gay community anymore. I talk about sexual and gender minority populations because there's been surveys done across this country too that have looked at the fact that different sexual and gender minority groups are targeting one another. Yes. So here we are in 2022 and we absolutely have to celebrate Vreend and I am so much better off because of Vreend. I can live where I want, I can be who I want, but then there are all these issues and concerns and there are the future generations to worry about. And yes, there needs to be coalition building uh, with the black community, with women, with certainly with our indigenous communities. But in the midst of all of the work in the intersections, there's still a lot of work to do within the sexual and gender minority populations. And I just felt an absolute need to say that this evening. Um, you know, I'm, I've been writing a book. It's, it'll be finished toward the end of November. And for the last two years during COVID, that's all I've been thinking about. And God knows I've spent lots of time alone, so I've had lots of time to think. <laughs> but, uh, but these are the, the, the concerns I have. And I, and I hope uh, everyone in this room who is concerned with sexual and gender minorities, and particularly with our children and youth, think about that. Andre's like grateful that that Reed happened and he, he mentioned how much better his life is. But he talked a lot about how much better we have to do yet. And and within institutions like healthcare and policing and what did you think when you were listening to Andre's response to the conversation? It it just brought it so close to home. It it was so clearly you can hear the the emotion in his voice and the reality of the situation today, which is not what we would hope it to be. It's not, we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that just reinforces the point that we've got so much work to do. But I think, I think also it reminds, it reminds all of us that these things don't just happen by chance. For them to really stick, they have to, they have to be approached through all of the different aspects of our society, through our education system, through, through social workers, through healthcare, through the police, through all of the different aspects of our society that have the ability to impact people from different sexual orientations in a really good way and in a really negative way. And so there's, there's so much learning that that needs to be done. We're 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 definitely we're de 
we're, we're just only, we've got the law in place, which is such a great thing, but we haven't done the work to understand what it really means in people's everyday lives. Yeah, it's like a garden you have to keep tending. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this next, uh, this next uh, clip is a conversation or a comment from Carolyn Campbell and then a question which Doug answers, and I just wanted you to hear it. The comment is what you're talking about with respect to civil society and what we can do, and your comment about Shelley Miller, too, and her question, um, is there's something happening in the whole world conversation around repatriation, too, with Indigenous objects. And there's a direction that's been coming out just in the last like couple weeks or so that they're going to try to find some more old legislation in order to make a moral decision that the British Museum, for instance, could make a moral decision on repatriation, which I think, I think is very fascinating. And in my experience with um, government leaders, I do find that they will listen to the public and listen to people. So I just imagine that what we can do is to use our voice, whatever voice you have, Absolutely. in whatever mm -hmm. forum you can. So use our that voice. was very powerfully said and a great question to us all. Um, to you, Doug, this has been such a defining moment, I think, not just for your career, but for your life. And I wonder, was there a moment in 1997, or a moment in those 11 years, or a moment when newspaper articles were coming out, or you were speaking, because I know how often you speak to people about this case, that you realize that this, this, is, this is so important to me and my life and my contribution and my voice and how you um, help people and coach people and have shaped and changed the world. Yeah, well, I, I have to say, I, I wouldn't look at it that way. Uh, it was such a privilege to be involved with such a wonderful group of people like Joanne and Sheila and June and, and Murray and, and uh, Michael. Um, it was such a privilege to be there uh, and to learn from all of these people. Um, so I'm, I'm so thrilled to have had the opportunity. That, that's not to say that there weren't some difficult days. It was downright exhausting. <laughs> well, and, you know, and, and as you know, Mary, we had day jobs. Like I, like I had a real job. <laughs> and it was, you know, uh, all day, every day, and so we did almost all of our work at night and on weekends because you know we had like the clients were paying, so, and they weren't very happy to hear. Sorry, I can't be there for your file because I'm busy doing something else. I mean, you know. Uh, so yes, it was exhausting, and it went on for a long time. <laughs> so interesting to think about, like Doug mentions at the beginning of the conversation in the last episode about he was like a construction lawyer. And, and they had to do this. They had to fight for their rights off the sides of their desks. How, how does that make you feel when you hear that? It's, you know, Doug, of course, is so humble, always. Um, but when you think of it, and I, I think if you listened at the first, at the first podcast when he was talking, he, he is a construction, he, he, does, he does construction law, not, not Supreme Court. And, and the Charter of Rights wasn't in place when he went to university. But in spite of that, he knew that he had to do this because he is the he was at the time one of the few lawyers who had lived the experience of being gay and was prepared to say it out loud that he lived that experience and so being able to bring that uh, that perspective and it it's something that 
you know, I've had conversations with Doug about this because you heard Carolyn mention Shelley's question, which is Shelley's question, uh, that's Shelley Miller, um, is what, what are you going to do as an individual? And, and the thing that really fascinates me so much about the case is even though, even though we, we look at the Supreme Court decision and we think of the lawyers involved, it really is about individual people who decided they needed to do something. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the most compelling part of this whole story for me. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fascinating part of the conversation, for sure. This next clip is from uh, Andrea Mondor, who's a friend of yours that you invited that evening, um, just talking about her experience raising a daughter in a world where these are still questions we're asking. I'm reminded of um, your opening remarks about it, how we don't have many of these and really enjoying this moment, so thank you. I wonder if I could share with you some other very special conversations I've been having. And then I'll leave you with a question that's not from me, but someone I thought might learn something from our time together. And those special conversations are in the car on the way to Ross Shepherd High School uh, with a bunch of young people that are friends with my daughter who's 17. They're overheard conversations in the basement uh, when we're up having family dinner. And they're um, uh, texts that I get sent from our daughter Ella as she takes on some of these challenges in her social group in a way that I never did and we never did perhaps in our childhoods. And um, the sentiment that I have that's found me in overhearing these and being asked questions is incredible affection and pride for this generation who um, does things that we didn't do. They are vocal, they are compassionate, they protect each other They look for opportunities to celebrate differences. They are um, absolutely, I'm I'm getting goosebumps even recalling some of these uh, situations. And they're every week, they're every month, and they're real, they're they're lived experience. So when I was thinking of coming here, I thought, my goodness, you know, who would want to hear this, really learn from this? And it was my daughter, Ella, and I sent her the invitation so she could read it. And I asked her on the dog walk this afternoon, I fired off the text and say, what would you like to ask or what would you like to know? And if you'll permit me, I'll just take off the glasses because these are for distance and <laughs> I'm going to read and I clearly have an issue. I'm in denial that I'm not, I haven't got bifocals yet. Okay. <laughs> so two part question. Um, why in your opinion, this is Ella's uh, text here to me uh, for you both and the room perhaps. Why in your opinion, do you believe people discriminate against people based on sexual orientation? And what do you believe is the best way for an individual like me, who is still in school and learning about the world, to conquer that discrimination? Really, really good questions. That's a grown-up question. A, I, I, and Andrew, first of all, I, I, wish that, um, I wish that we in this room had simple answers, especially the first question. Why do people believe that? It is, Chris, maybe you've got some insight on this as well. It, it baffles me. You know, I, I'll say personally, I have a son who's gay. I'm extremely proud of him. I'm very, very grateful to Doug and others that he's, he's able to, to live his life. As Chris knows, we've got lots of friends uh, as well. And it, it just baffles me. I, I will say to your comment about the hopefulness of younger people, 
Um, I'm very proud of the fact that my uh, my granddaughters and my my uh, niece's daughter are growing up with Uncle Sean and Uncle Peter and uh, Grandpa Barry and Grandpa Kevin. This is their life now. They are they don't think anything differently about these people. This is just our family, and I, and I think that gives me hope. Um, I think it will take a generation. I, I'm hopeful for the next next generation uh, that that these things won't. You know, maybe they'll be the ones that look back 25 years, like I was saying earlier, and say, how could people ever think this way? And and I think you know, my suggestion to to young people. I feel like I'm an old person um, making those comments, but um, but to read the words. In, in, the, in that, that decision, to, to read those words, to believe them and understand that in spite of what they may see and hear, this is the society that we want to be, this is what we aspire to be, and, um, and it's on each one of us to, to take responsibility to make, that, to make that so. Doug? Well, I think it's a bigger question than, than sexual orientation discrimination. It's discrimination, yeah. period. Uh, and why do people discriminate against each other? And, and I have to say, in doing this, I'm not thinking about those other people who discriminate. We do, too. Uh, I think a big factor is fear of the unknown. So if you don't know anybody who is Muslim or Jewish or black or transgender, um, they're these kind of scary people that somehow are not like you, they're different from you, and, and uh, that gives rise to elements of, of fear. And if you've not really known people as people, stereotypes that come into play, uh, all of which is very dangerous, and, and that was the, the special problem for the 2SLGBTQ community, because everybody thought they didn't know anybody who was gay. Everybody knew somebody who was gay. It was Uncle Pete. It was their dentist. It was their teacher. It was their best friend. They just didn't know that. If they had known that, um, their views might well have been really different. I think another element that is there is the concern about loss of power. And those who have been in pretty good privileged positions fearing that these others who have not had power in the past, now you may have to share some of that power. And I think that's a scary factor for people as well. So you said the question that Andrea's daughter asked was a very adult question. And I, I love Doug's response talking about the, the fact that, that members of that community were invisible to us. Absolutely. And his comment that if, you know, as, as frightening as it must be for people, um, you know, who, who are of a different sexual orientation, for indigenous people today, for black people, to be the ones who are 
the different ones mm-hmm. that must be uh, I, I, it must be so um, daunting sometimes. But the simple the simple thought that if we knew more of those people, if we had more connections with them, if we learned more about them, if we could dispel some of those horrible myths and fears, that that might be the way that we actually we actually get to the place that we want to that we want to be at. I think that is the answer. I think the fact that we live in such a more diverse world than what we used to, and and it it is. I think, I hope, that for most people, it doesn't matter. You know, it's just we are who we are, and we're a diverse mix of people. And um, and and the communities that we live in now, we get a chance to see more people and experience more people who might not look and, and act the same way as we do. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, um, Murray Billet, who you heard earlier, also had a response to the the question that Andrea's daughter posed. So let's listen to that. When I address this kind of stuff, I talk about equality of sameness. You know, you drive a truck like me, you got a shotgun like me, or so everybody is comfortable in that, in that area. And then the part that we don't talk about enough is the way some religions go after us. And, and as much as I'd like to say, Peggy, I agree with you, and in years to come, it'll get better. I, until religion really understands mm. our families. Right. And, and, you know, they get, they don't understand the difference between biological family and logical family. Every one of us has a logical family and a biological family. So I think the struggle will continue. But uh, to what I've advised previously is if you don't have the courage to say to someone, excuse me, what did you just say? You can just say, Oh, gee whiz, my grandma's a lesbian. How about that? <laughs> you know, so do it in third person. That's, that's kind of a, a, a way to dodge around. So I just love that Murray's equipping us with strategies to deal with bigotry. Simple things. Yeah. You, gotta, you just got to have that quip on the tip of your tongue to be able to say to people that will stop them in their tracks yeah. without, without accusing them of... Because I think... I think accusing people just closes doors. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It doesn't open the conversation. I think maybe I'm just too forgiving of people, but I think lots of people say things that they don't really. They just haven't thought about it. They haven't thought about about how that feels or how that sounds to the people um, that they're that they're talking about. It's. I mean, I'm I'm old enough to remember some very bad language. Uh, from the past that thankfully is is almost completely gone. But we just have to keep working on that so people understand when they use certain phrases or refer to certain kinds of things to understand the impact of your words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the, the notion of calling people in rather than calling them out. Yeah. Yeah, it was nicely illustrated by Murray there. I want to maybe end with this one um, because it was just such a fascinating story that Katrin Owen shared with us. And can you, can you sort of tell us what Katrin's connection to the Vreen case was? I mean, not everyone might've heard it in the first episode. So Katrin worked for many years at, uh, at Calder Bateman, uh, along with Margaret Bateman. 
And at the time, and they were like fantastic at uh, communications people and often called in with complex and difficult issues to advise clients on how do we handle this one? How do we speak to the media? How do we frame our position? And so um, Calder Bateman was instrumental in working with Doug and with others on on how do they manage the case, knowing all the controversy that there's going to be, and, and there was, when this Supreme Court, first when they went to the Supreme Court, but then when the decision came out, everybody knew it was going to be controversial no matter what. And so Catron uh, would have been instrumental along with Margaret in helping getting prepared for how you respond to that. Awesome. Well, let's, let's hear from Catron because her story is an interesting one. Uh, I had a very small piece of this puzzle. We, uh, among other things, ran the news conference on the right. day that the um, we made it public that the decision had come down. And my job was to moderate the news conference and also just to prep everybody and make sure that we were all aligned. And in the flurry of activity, Delwyn looked at me at one point and said, I am going to kiss my partner on the steps of this building at the end of this. And I will be forever sorry that I asked the next question, which was, are you sure? And he fixed me with a compassionate but steely stare and said, would you? And I, of course, said, yes. And I learned a very, very big lesson in that moment. I was bringing my own discriminatory thinking mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. my advice even. And I was um, horrified just a little bit and quickly regrouped. The kiss happened. <laughs> it was the money shot. <laughs> it was. It was, <laughs> it was everywhere. Um, but I was timid. Mm-hmm. In that moment, are you sure was the wrong question? So, I mean, Catherine, th- like for sharing that was it was fabulous. You sort of mentioned to her, you, you said something to her after that, and, and what was it? Well, basically, knowing Catherine and and knowing what a lot of that work is involves, you're trying to you're trying to protect your client from the very worst of what could happen, and and so even though uh, um, I think. I think Katrin is is cringing a little bit now. At the time, I could understand completely what she was trying to do, which was to to save Delwyn from the very worst of the vitriol and the hatred that would come from seeing that image. But now, when we think about it, and as Katrin was mentioning, and that she quickly so quickly changed her her position on, is that. We have to be ready for those things, and we have to confront them, not in a stupid way, not in a, not in a, a, a way that puts people's lives at risk, because sometimes it does come down to that. Mm-hmm. We still have to be thoughtful about it, but, but to keep being honest and, and, and making it understand that, that love appears in all kinds of forms, and it's, it's good. And and I think that's what that that's what that iconic picture now shows. Uh, but at the time, it it was. I think we need to all understand how big a risk it was for Delwyn 
to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great story and a great, it's a great story, great lesson to, uh, yeah. to have learned as well yeah. in the midst of all in the, the midst of everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, those are all the clips that I have for you. There, there were a few others um, that just kind of mentioned a few aside things. We heard from Andre earlier. He mentioned he's working on another book. And uh, Doug also called on Darren Hagen, Edmonton's queen, um, to talk about the fact that he's working with the uh, Edmonton Community Foundation on a documentary about the Vereen case. Absolutely. Can hardly wait to see it. When I talked with Darren there, he was saying that there's, he's got so much content, it might actually have to be two documentaries, which, which would be fantastic, because you don't want to lose any of the story that went along with this, which is another reason why I'm so glad we had this conversation. We need to keep these stories alive. Mm -hmm. But I said to him, because so, someone else had suggested it to me, uh, um, but I think it's a great idea. I also think it'd make a fabulous film. I can, I can already, we talked a little bit about who, who could play Doug and, and who could play <laughs> Sheila. And there are some great actors who could play those parts uh, because it is an amazing story that um, that we can still learn from today. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on the show, Peggy. It was great talking to you again, Adam. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the discussion we had following my interview with Doug Strollery. Lots of interesting comments and stories were shared. On our next episode, I'll be chatting with the brilliant minds behind Edmonton-based Areto Labs, a cybersecurity company building AI-based technology to stop the spread of online hate. I can hardly wait for that conversation with two brilliant young women. Chancellor's Conversations is hosted by me, Peggy Garrity. It's produced by Tyrell Brochu, Amissa Jablonski, and Adam Rosenhart. The show is edited by Adverb Communications. Chancellor's Conversations is recorded live at the CKUA Edmonton event space in the old Alberta Hotel. Big thanks to the team at CKUA for welcoming us here into their space. Music